I said, why are we all the way over here? And he goes, are you kidding me? Haven't you heard? There's undercover FBI agents in that pit. This could have put your life at risk, of literally. Of course it could have. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer for CBS's Criminal Minds. With me today is my lovely co-host. Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. And I'm excited today because we are going to Jim undercover as James Galenti. Yes. And I'm continuing to trade crude oil. And one of the things that happened to me repeatedly over the course of this three years was that suspicion would fall on anybody new there. And why was that? Well, I think her name was Wendy Graham. The wife of Senator Graham was appointed the head of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Okay. They're like the SEC for commodities. The SEC polices the New York Stock Exchange and the CFTC monitors and polices the Commodities Exchange, the NYMEX. So, when she took office, she was interviewed by the magazine, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission magazine, and they asked her, why should the CFTC be policing the Commodities Exchange? Why doesn't just the SEC do it? They're bigger, they're more powerful, they're more experienced. She said, oh no, we're doing a great job. In fact, our undercover operations in New York and Chicago are doing really well. Oh my God. How long into your investigation did this happen? I don't know. I think we found out about it maybe six months into it. Could have been a little bit more. Did she, had she, been, I thought you guys were deep undercover. How did We she, were. It's just unbelievable. Did she know? Did someone tell her? Of course she. somebody told her. We're doing an investigation on her exchange. Obviously the FBI had to disclose that to them, but she was told in no uncertain terms that it was secret. And she blew the lid off of it. So what did well, the... Well, Jim, this could have put your life at risk, Of literally. course it could have. The guy standing next to me is known as Hitman. So, and these guys were thugs. These were not brokers that you see on Wall Street. These were thugs. They got their jobs because their uncle had a, had a, you know, a seat on the exchange 30 years ago and he passed it down to them. And they, you know, a lot of them were just high school grads and they were just, they were just street thugs. And a lot, they were they were Italian, they were Irish, they were Polish, and they were families. You know, they were just they they were locked in there for life because they were family. Well, and Jim, we both know that money is one of the top two motivations for murder. Of course. And she's just literally endangered the life of you and every right. other undercover agent. So. Because we did have a sister operation going on in Chicago, which we helped support. The agents in New York helped support them. We would go visit them to show that, that they were real people and they had real friends. And they would come and visit us. 
Anyway, so the point is, she did that. So what does the exchange do? What does the board of the NYMEX do? What do you think they did? Start looking for moles. There you go. They hired Kroll Associates, which is populated mainly by retired FBI agents, to start doing background investigations on all the new brokers over the last year. So that's not stressful now for you, uh, Undercover. Yeah, it created a little bit of a problem. So it was really, really, really stressful at that point. And we Wait, ha- I'm sorry. <clears throat> I'm sorry to interrupt you. But could you give us a little, give our listeners a little bit of the inside look at what that does? So what happened? You all learn that your covers may be blown and that there's this investigation of your background. Is there an emergency meeting called with your oh, yeah. handler? What Tell us what, what happens. Yes. At this point, we had gotten six agents in on the exchange. Me and Barry, the other agent, became brokers. The other ones, men and women, were clerks still in, in various pits. And so they had an emergency meeting. They called us into the main office of the FBI, we all had to go through our contact agents and all the surreptitious stuff to make sure that we weren't being followed. And we met and we read the article and we were furious. I mean, all that preparation and a decision was made to just tough it out and just go back in there and pretend nothing happened. Did they, did the supervisors, whoever was in charge of running the investigation, did they ask you all your opinion? Did they say, do you want us to pull you out? How does that happen? What's that conversation like? I mean, none of us really wanted to be pulled out. Um, I don't remember them asking us, but I do remember them saying, you know, what do you think? You know, what has people been talking about it, anything? And so I said, look, you know, it's, it's possible that, you know, they're going to look at us because we're so new and so forth, but... I think we can do it. And sure enough, I remember going back to work the next day and the nice guy, Neil, um, pulled me aside and said, here, come on over here and talk over here. And I said, all right, what's up? And he goes, you know, they're saying there's undercover FBI just down here. So we have to be really careful from now on. So your cover was totally working with Neil. Yes. And I remember another time I'm sitting on the rail during a break and with another clerk standing in front of me and another clerk sitting on the rail next to me and we're talking and and they said um so what did you do what did you go to school for you know they were just trying to get to know me better and i said oh i went to school for chemistry i got a degree in chemistry and he goes really a friend of mine has a degree in chemistry and he became an fbi agent and i said really chemistry and he goes, yeah, I guess they do all sorts of scientific stuff. He said, you could be an FBI agent. He's, and then he goes, no, they'd never take you. <laughs> and so I said, great. And certainly as time went on, a lot of illegal trades went on after the bell, after the closing bell. So basically somebody realizes, oh, my God, I lost money at this. You're not allowed to do any trades after the bell. But they would then find their friends and say, hey, can you get me out of this? Can you fix one of your things and say that you didn't actually get this good deal for your client? You got this bad deal for your client? That kind of stuff. And it's all unstated. It's all done with eyes and hands. And there's not a lot of talking. But one time after this article had come out, one guy said, can I talk to over here? And he pulled me all the way across the floor to the other side. 
And I said, what are we doing all the way over here? And he goes, look, I know it's after the bell, but I really got screwed and I got to do this. And can you help me out? And I'm like, ah. I said, why are we all the way over here? And he goes, are you kidding me? Haven't you heard? There's undercover FBI agents in that pit. So I don't want to be anywhere near them. So can you please do this with me? So, Jim, that brings <clears throat> up a great point that I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering. In a long-term investigation like that, you got to know the people you were working with. You said you occasionally had beers with them. You certainly had to socialize or you would have been identified as the FBI guy immediately. So what is that like for you mentally as a human being investigating people that at least some of whom, presumably, you got to like? Okay, well, let's talk about that for a minute. First of all, a perfect example of that is there was a clerk who started around the time that I did. And he was a young guy, you know, probably early 20s. Um, I was in my late 20s at that time. And uh, I think he was 25, 26 years old. And he, you know, was just a nice guy, you know. So I gravitated towards him because there were a lot of not nice guys. In fact, if you want to know how unnice the guys are on the New York Mercantile Exchange... Just go to YouTube and type in Robert Downey Jr. Commodities Exchange. And you will see a video in which he spends five minutes on the exchange floor and goes outside and just unleashes a string of expletives, of curses, and of derogatory statements about the kind of people he just had to deal with. And I had to deal with them for three years. But this one guy was a really nice guy. And I hope he's listening to this because this is really important because we became friends and particularly because one day he came in sort of in a panic and I said, what's wrong? And he goes, well, I dropped my daughter off at school and then my car broke down and I don't have any way to get her, you know, and I got to pick her up at 430 or whatever. And I said, well, you know, I'll drive you. And he goes, I live in Jersey. And I was like, that's all right you know, I'll take you. And he goes, you would do that? And I was like, well, you need help. Yeah, I'll do it. So I, after work, I put him in my car and I drove him out there. We picked up his daughter. I drove him to their house. And I think we, you know, sat down for a few minutes and I got to know his little daughter and he was African-American and he was struggling to be a single parent father for her. And he had a job and he worked hard and he tried to take care of her. So there's all these things going on in his life. And I felt really bad for him. But at that point, you know, I was, you know, able to help him out. And that was a good thing, you know, which I like doing anyway. And then I became a broker. And I realized that if I'm close to him, that even if he doesn't want to do something illegal, my job as an undercover agent is to engage in illegal activity with other people. Right that he could be bought into that unwittingly. And I didn't want to see that happening, particularly because one, he was a nice guy. He had never approached me about doing anything illegal in the six months that I was there as a clerk. And unfortunately, I knew I was going to be doing a lot of I illegal stuff. So the day I became a broker, he came up to me to congratulate me. And I said, Look, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you anymore. And you should have seen the look on his face. It broke my heart. You blew him off for his own good, but he couldn't have known that. No. 
I'm hoping that years later when the operation came down and he realized who I was, an undercover FBI agent, that that maybe he put two and two together, but I couldn't tell him. And the reason why I did that was because the very first day on the exchange floor, I recognized a guy from the business school at Fordham University where I went to college. Oh, Jim, exactly what you had to avoid. Exactly. Anyone you knew. And I saw this guy, and I didn't know his name, but I recognized him. He had a distinctive enough look for me to know. And he was a broker in the NYMEX, trading crude oil futures. In the pit where you were going to be. Yes. So I immediately, you know, tried to hide from him the rest of the day. I called my contact agent, went through all that machinations to get me to headquarters, and I told my bosses that I thought I would have to drop out. And they said, no, see if he recognizes you first. So the next day, the first thing before the bell opened, I walked up to him. And I said, hey, didn't you go to Fordham? And he looked at me and said, are you a broker? And I said, no, I'm a clerk. I just started here. Why are you talking to me then? What an ass. And I said, okay, I'm good. So I went back, told my bosses, didn't, he didn't recognize me, didn't even want to talk to me, and that was that. Well, so there was precedence then for brokers, new brokers, blowing off clerks. So right. maybe the guy you befriended understood. Well, I doubt he did, and I know it hurt him, and I was really pissed that I had to do it. But I knew it would protect him from getting entangled in something that he wasn't involved in in the first place. So anyway, that was that. Was that. It was one of the d most difficult things I did, but... There would be many, many, many other difficult things. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see. You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting. Help me, please. I am going to be waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. So when the Gulf War broke out and we went from 200 men to 320 men in the, in the crude oil pit, we would all sweat through our clothes. I mean, literally sweat through our clothes. Oh, my worst nightmare. And our clothes happened to be how we were disguising the fact that we were carrying recording devices. Oh, yes, the wire, the metal wire. And by the way, it's not this the metal wire. It is a metal recording device and wires that go to... Not only the control button, but also to the microphones. So we had lots of wires and a metal box. 
and it was very difficult to hide. Mm-hmm. And the windows would literally drip sweat down after a couple hours during the day. Oh, that is so gross. It's but, horrible. But speaking of the wires, what I'm talking about, though, is that technology today is very different from technology back in, like, 1990. So I'm sure that wires and the metal box and all the other things have gotten smaller and changed. But back then, yeah. it was much harder to hide. Much harder. And so there was no digital recording devices at the time. And so we had reel-to-reel tapes, long tapes, because we had to use it all day and record any criminal conversations. So it was difficult. but and That's why this is considered a major case, too. I mean, if you think about the resources necessary, all the backstory, not backstory, but all the behind-the-scenes people at the FBI working, because you turn in those tapes, someone has to listen to those tapes. Hour what do you think we were doing? Hour. Actually, we had to transcribe those tapes, and we had to approve the transcripts, and we had to document everything we did. We were working 20-hour days on the on the slowest day. It was the most horrific work detail, and I did it for three years. Mentally and physically exhausting. I can't imagine. During the course of that undercover operation, the New York Times published the the most stressful jobs in the world. Number one was air traffic controller. Number two was commodities broker. Number three was police officer. I was number two and three at the same time, and I'm certain that made me number one. It was the most stressful job on the planet. There's absolutely no question about it. I was an undercover operator in two of the worst jobs on the planet. And all at the same time, it was terrible. Very stressful. And that's why they actually have a unit that takes care of undercover agents and monitors them. Because a lot of them go off reservation. You are so stressed out. You want to kill people. You literally want to kill people. Especially... FBI people who are making you do stupid things, you know, who whose administrative rules are are making it impossible for you to make your case and do your job. For example, one guy wanted me to collect receipts on every beer that I bought when I went out to a bar. Why? Because they wanted me to turn it into the FBI. And I said, how do I justify that when everybody sits down at a bar, they throw down a 20 they order their beers, and, and at the end, they push whatever change is left over to the bartender. They never ask for a receipt. We'll Nobody save. collects receipts. And he said to me, well, you can say you want to use it to cheat on your taxes. <laughs> Good God. And I said, and I would be fired instantly. Don't you know that a broker's job is a fiduciary job? If I was cheating on my taxes, I would be fired. Well, they're doing criminal activity. I said, they don't look at it as criminal activity. They look at it as helping their friends. So... You have no idea. I had this screaming match with this guy. He had no idea what was going on. And what I did, though, was I kept those cards and I documented what I spent with my fingernail on those cards and I turned those in. And he was like, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. Uh, Clearly someone with no background in, I don't know, the real world. So I'll tell you one more aspect of this story before we move on, before we conclude this particular episode about my undercover operation on the NYMEX. And that was about the wires you were talking about. So one day, I'm in the pit. Well, let's back up. Two weeks earlier, I said, with all these new people in, we're sweating through our clothes. We need better technology. We can't use this stuff. They told me, no. No new technology. You'll be fine. I said, no, I won't be fine. I know it. 
And I knew the FBI had better technology, but they don't use it on the criminal side because on the spy side, those cases never go to trial. But on the criminal side, they do. And when they go to trial, there's discovery. And the defense could get hold of the techniques that we use. And so in order to keep those techniques secret, we don't use them on the criminal side. Right. Two weeks later, I'm in the pit. My company that I was working for was a big dealer. So I was on the top row of the pit. Some guy was squeezing through me and another guy to try to get deeper into the pit. Uh-oh. And as he did, he kind of hooked the wire on the side of my shirt. And he looks at me and he goes, is that a wire? <gasps> Jim. And I just continued trading. And I ignored him. I was like, go to hell. And I, you know, I'll get 80, I'll get 80. You know, I was just yelling and screaming and trading. But I realized there was an issue. And he starts whispering to other people. So I ducked out, went to the bathroom, pulled out all my wires and stuffed them in my underwear and basically got back in the pit and pretended nothing was wrong. And I could see the word spread like wildfire. Because this is after the article came out. Yes, it is. And so I didn't know what to do, but I just toughed it out and went back and reported to my contact agent, went into the headquarters. We had another big meeting. And I said, see, I told you it was going to happen. By the next morning, everybody was talking about it. And people were coming up to me, people that I didn't know from across the floor, and patting me on the back and saying, hey, Dean, how you doing? To pat me to see They're all testing to see if you got a wire on. And, of course, I got permission not to wear a wire for the next three days. And I kept telling them, look, I'm really worried about my back stopping. I really think something's going to happen. Get me more people that I could rely on as backstopping people who vouch for me. And they're like, oh, you'll be fine. Sure enough, this happened on Wednesday. Friday, three minutes before the closing bell, I got an envelope handed to me while I was standing in the pit. I open it up. The board of the NYMEX demands your presence in front of the board at, let's say the bell is at 4 o'clock at 4.05 p.m. Well, is that a common thing, the board demanding never. someone's presence? No, never heard of it. So I knew that that meant that I, I had five minutes to get from this pit to the board, no time to make a phone call, no time to get for help. I was worried. So I, you know, calmly marched from the pit after the closing bell, did my trades, turned in my paperwork, and marched up to the board of the exchange. Are you wearing a wire or is this one of the days you had No, I didn't wear it. Okay. I walk into the boardroom and there's one chair sitting alone. They took out the table in the conference room and there's 12 chairs sitting in a semicircle facing that one chair. And all the board members are there and there's a guy behind them at a computer taking notes. Sorry, is this the board or the star chamber? Yeah, this is the board of the New York Mercantile Exchange. And for the next two hours and 45 minutes, They grilled me about who I was, where I was born, where I went to school, who my teachers were, who my best friends were, who lived next door to me, who I worked for, who my coworkers were. I mean, it was unbelievable. Thank God you'd done your own backstopping job. There you go. Had it not been mine and had I not known it so well, I would have been, it would have been horrible. So this went on for two hours and 45 minutes and... This guy's taking notes and making lists. Like, I want three names of people that you worked 
for here. Three names of students that you were with in this class, you know, the whole, my whole life. And, you know, we, our backstopping is only so deep. And I literally got to the point where I said, there is not another human being alive that I know that isn't a cop or an FBI agent or a prosecutor. I have used every name I have ever thought of in my life and I am done. And I am like, so close to wanting to just stand up and pull out my credentials and say, I'm an FBI agent, damn it. But I knew that would blow this entire multi-million dollar operation and I'd spent so much time and all the other people had spent so much time that I just did not know what I should do. So what did you decide to do? So I'm literally at my wit's end. And they asked me for five names of people that could vouch for me from Fordham or something. And I had four names and I just said, uh, Dr. Moses Kalustian. And who was that? He was my chemistry professor. And one of the guys said, wait, didn't you use that name before? Because I did, because he was my chemistry professor. And the guy who was typing him in said, how do you spell that? And I'm telling him how to spell it. And this guy says, wait, didn't he use that before? And he goes, no, I got it. And he goes, oh, okay. So I got past that one. And I was like, I'm done. I can't answer another question. I don't know what the hell to do. And I'm like very anxious and I'm really, everything is going like crazy. And then the chairman of the board of the exchange who's sitting there, who barely even opened his mouth the entire time, just very quietly says, so you think you're smart, don't you? <laughs> what an idiot. And I said, excuse me? He goes, you think you're smart. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, I've been sitting here for two hours and 45 minutes listening to you answer all these questions about your life and your history and your work and school and everything. And not once have you mentioned your mother. And I said, it's because my mother died of cancer when I was a kid. And I started crying. And he got big eyes and he looked around and he stood up and he got me some Kleenex and he got somebody to pour me some water and he patted me on the back and he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I looked up at him and I said, look, I don't know why you guys are interrogating me like this. I don't know why I'm having to go through this. This, hard, this job is hard enough to begin with. I never should have taken this job. I should have stayed where. And they're like, no, no, you're doing a great job. Are you kidding me? You did what other people took years to do. And he's really being supportive. And he said, I I'm sorry, we thought you were an FBI agent. And so I just sniffled and blew my nose and said, well, you know, I think I'm going to quit this job anyway. And because I thought I needed an out because I was trying to protect the other people. Right. And they said, no, no, you're doing great. Don't do that. That's great. That's fine. We'll take care of it. Everything's fine. Well, what had happened on Friday was like basically everybody in the entire exchange was talking about the fact that they thought I was an FBI agent. So the next trading day, Monday morning, I didn't go to work right in the beginning, but all the other agents did. And when they were on the floor, we actually have recordings of all 12 of the board members going around throughout the whole floor and telling everybody on the exchange, look, don't worry about it. Galenti is no FBI agent. He's a 
friggin' crybaby. And so we actually have another recording of my boss telling our company, which there was another FBI agent in who was recording it, and he said, no, he's either the best actor in the world or he's no FBI agent because he's a crybaby, something like that. And so that's how I got through it, and um, I was able to eventually start wearing my wire again, and and then um, I was under for a whole nother year after that, and uh, and then other things happened. Well, Jim, I am really looking forward to hearing about how this case was resolved, what kind of charges were brought, whether there was a trial, and I think that makes uh, another episode. At least another episode, Francie. This is going to be a long, long, long case. But thank you for listening, and until next time, signing off for Best Case Restricts. Best Case Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l.org. <laughs> <laughs>